This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. I'm not um, with the president as much as the director is. I've never felt anything other than his interest in what we know so that he can make the best decisions he can. We can be wrong with the best of them, but my experience is that when you question our integrity, that is so core to who we are, that's where the rub is. We talk about risks and failure all the time, putting humans at risk. It's the realest thing that one can ever experience. You better make darn sure that what you send them to do is worthy. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Sue Gordon is the principal deputy director of national intelligence. That makes her the number two in the entire U.S. intelligence community. Sue is a career CIA officer. She is widely respected for her creative and innovative mind, as well as her can-do approach to everything. And she is a good friend. I recently had the opportunity to sit down with Sue and talk about her career and the big challenges facing the U.S. intelligence community. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morrell. Sue, it is great to have you on the show, and it's always so good to see you. I know. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's like home. So I want to take you back to the first time we met. I think it was in the mid-1980s. We were in a training class together at a secret facility, super secret facility, yeah, yeah. right? Located. Uh, located somewhere. It was after hours, and we were playing basketball together, and we were on opposing teams. And my team was on offense, your team was on defense. And I was on one wing, and I tried to run through the lane, which is where you were, to get to the other wing to get a shot. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground <laughs> seeing stars. Do you remember that? <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, it was awesome. 
Mostly what I remember is that that's what we used to do was to just go out and play. But, yeah, I do remember that day. I don't think I came into the lane the no. rest of the game. That's the whole point. That's, <laughs> that's the that's, point. That's the point. And then fast forward 10 years, and I'm retiring from CIA. And you're the director of support, which I want to come back to later because mm-hmm. I think it's an incredibly important job um, and people don't understand it. But people are giving me gifts at my retirement. And the directorate that you lead gives me a remarkable gift, which was one of the original blueprints Mm -hmm. to the original headquarters building, which still hangs in my office at home. But you also give me two other gifts. You give me a long sleeve T-shirt, Duke women's basketball. And you give me this. And I still cherish both of them. (laughs) This hangs um, in a special spot in my house where I hang special lanyards, Mm -hmm. right? The Duke lanyard. Did you do that to remind me of that basketball game in 1985, or was there some deeper meaning to it? Okay, so I always have a reason for everything I do. Probably not to to any sort of he-he-he. <laughs> Probably three meetings. Number one is I think at retirement it's really good to remember the moments because they, I don't know, we get so caught up in the last thing we did. I think sometimes I like to remind people of the moments that made up that whole career. Um, second thing is you and I are both competitors, and Duke is so much who I am that I just thought that was one of those things that would bind us. Maybe the moment, but more just who we are. So, yeah, no, I think it was, a, I think it was trying to be meaningful and to connect us. And, and the question I really want to get to here is – what did playing college basketball mean to you, right? In fact, I'd love for you to talk about how playing sports in general yeah. and playing college basketball in particular yeah. influenced who you are. Oh, uh, yeah, I think I think it is as foundational to me as my parents. So we'll just go through a couple things about sports. Number one is it teaches you how to compete, and that's that's important because – Outcome matters, right? It's not just the process that you're going through. It isn't just the plays you're doing. You're actually trying to do something. And there is someone who's trying to keep you from doing it, um, not necessarily for a nefarious purpose, but they're just there. So I think learning how to compete and learning how to drive to outcome probably is the best lesson of sport. It also teaches you how to be dependent upon and to learn how to depend on others, And so especially as you get into leadership roles, both of those are important things to know how to do. So a couple of metaphors there for the intelligence community, right? Right. One is that you're trying to accomplish something and somebody's trying to prevent you, right? Right. That's what we do every day, right? Right. Try to collect intelligence that people are trying to keep secret. And then the other, right, this concept of teamwork is something that I know you and the DNI are working right. hard to have the community work together yep. as they try to do these things. Yeah. So those are two. I'll give you two more real quick because I do think it's everything. Uh, one of them is performance. And performance is the great equalizer. If you focus on performance, you won't have bias. If you learn how to accept that performance doesn't have bias, you'll find your way forward. In sports, that's what matters. You can think that the coach doesn't like you, and that's why they don't give you playing time, but truthfully, the coach just wants to win, and they're going to put whoever on the court can take them somewhere. And so, again, I think that when you then come into the workforce and you're trying to figure out how you go somewhere, 
to have the wherewithal to be self-critical, to not over-personalize what's happening to you, and to realize that if you can take an organization somewhere, they're going to want to put you on the field. I think I think that's probably the third best lesson. This self-critical piece is mm-hmm. really, really important, right? Mm-hmm. It is. For a lot of young analysts, um, and we both grew up on the analytics side we of did. the agency, right? For a lot of young analysts, when they get that first paperback, right, and oh. it's all marked up and it's red marks everywhere and stuff is crossed out and new stuff is added and stuff's moved around, you can react to that one of two ways, right? What I wrote was fine and they have a problem. Right. Or I have something to learn here and I'm really going to dig in and try to learn, right? right. It's really, really important. It is. And I think there are lots of and, – and as we talk today, maybe there are times we come back to this – this ability to realize that sometimes you're just intersecting what's happening in the world, but your success is dependent on your ability not to be stopped by it. Right. So not only a college basketball player, but the captain of the Duke women's team. Always a leader, or is that something you grew into? How do you think about where your leadership skills came from, how they evolved? Uh, Probably my leadership... We'll talk about the basketball thing because my basketball leadership is so improbable to me. I was three-year captain of the Duke women's basketball team. I think I'm the only Duke athlete that has ever been captain of their team for three years. In my sophomore year, so think about this. I'm 19 years old. I didn't earn a varsity letter. I wasn't good enough to play enough to earn a letter, but I was captain of the team. Ah! I don't even understand this, but I think it comes from what my folks taught me is that you should do something for the cause, hmm. right? That the quest you have is what should motivate you. So I think I lead because if I have responsibility, I have to do everything in my power to go forward. So it's not leadership because I want to be the star. It's not leadership because I want to be recognized. It's not leadership because I want to be promoted. It's because I recognize that if your vision exceeds the resources that you possess – then you must lead. And you can accomplish so much more. Right. And then you must, right? right. It's remarkable that your coach saw that, right? Yeah, I don't get it. Like what it, I mean, I was 19, yeah. Michael. I was shy. I'm, I was the introvert that I am today. I don't get it, but I'm grateful for it. Okay. So now I'm really yep. going to embarrass you. That was awful previously. I'm it's going to really, get worse. Really going to embarrass you and then take, take you back even more in history. You are one of the most unique if not the most unique intelligence officers that I ever worked with because you possess these two seemingly contradictory talents. One is you are one of the most creative and innovative people that I've ever worked with. And the other is that you are a, a doer, right? You do things. You take hills. You get things done. And usually you don't see those two traits together. You just don't. At least I haven't. And I'm really wondering where you think those two things came from right, in Sue Gordon? Mm-hmm. You know, was it, is it genetic? Did it come from your parents in, in that way? Is it, is it how they raised you? Was it teachers you had? Was it college basketball? You know, what, where did those two things come from? Well, thanks for the compliment. And if you were sitting in my chair, knowing how I always looked at you, you would be blushing. Well, you don't, get to, you don't, get, to, you, you don't yeah. get to talk about me. Yeah. This is all about you yeah. now. So here's, here's what I think. My mom and dad taught me a couple things that have carried me my whole life. Um, number one is I'm supposed to change the world. If you've, if you've got a minute, you're supposed to do something with it. And Did they say it just that way? No, that's just the it's way. Just, it's just who they were? Yeah, just who they were. You know, you're, you're supposed to do something, right? And the second one is you're supposed to always give your best. 
Now, luck of the draw, my best isn't bad. And so you put those two things together and you then launch me on life. And so it's not enough to think grand thoughts. I kind of hate what I call philosopher princes. They're a dime a dozen. They're people who can tell you what ought to be done or what should be done or what could be done. And while it's interesting, and I don't want to be smirch thought leadership, but that's pretty thin gruel. What are you going to do about it, right? And then if you believe that you're supposed to be personally invested in it, then that just gets you there, right? So yeah. you're supposed to do something with the minutes you have, and you're supposed to bring your rest. And if I add in something that I don't know that they taught me, but I'm going to say you, if you also believe you're supposed to do what somebody asked you to do, then the inevitable hurdles that are thrown in your way, you will find a way around them because you're supposed to. Too many people, when faced with a task, it gets hard, and so they think that meant they weren't supposed to do it. No, the hardness was never designed to stop you from your task. The hardness was just the inertia of the system. So I think it comes from who I am. What and about the creativity and innovation? Um, Is that something that developed over time, or were you a creative child? Yeah, I, I think third kid trying to find your spot. If you don't like the rules, make new ones. And I think if you're in a box, get out. Maybe Harvard School, um, where I took an early class at the Kennedy School. It was intelligence and policy. And we recreated the decision to commit more troops to the Vietnam conflict. And we know the outcome, right? This is a class full of people who know the outcome. But we were presented with the same data and the same two bad choices. And damn it, we made one of the two bad choices. I think it was in that moment. I carry it with me to this day. If you're presented with two bad choices, find a new one. Do you remember we took a we took a class together and we had a project where we had to redesign the agency? Mm-hmm. Um, your answer was was you know completely creative and innovative, and it was it was John Brennan's reorganization, as I remember. Huh? It did yeah. turn out to be. Yeah, oh, that's so weird. I had forgotten yeah, that. Absolutely. We have a friend, uh, Mark Kelton, mm-hmm. was on the podcast. Yeah, one of the most serious intelligence professionals committed to the craft that we both know. He also can be stodgy because he has this very view that there are adversaries and we should protect ourselves against. Spies are on every corner. That's that's so weird. (laughs) Um, I heard the other day what he told someone else about me, and I just think so. He said, that's Sue Gordon. She thinks anything is possible. Mm. I think I kind of do. Now, I have become wiser over my career about the realities of how you innovate within the government. And I think there's a huge difference about how you innovate in a government construct and how you innovate in the private sector. But but I do think that if you start from the premise that we could, and if you look at what we've experienced, what we've seen in our lifetime in this craft, there is there's a bigness to what we have done that should inspire everyone to believe that there's a lot of possibility mm-hmm. in what we do. So you majored in zoology. The parent right? discipline of all disciplines. <laughs> so why? And then how did you end up at CIA? How did you end up being interested in national security? How did, how did that happen? So zoology, because I wanted to be a mar- world-famous marine biologist, the only schools that had that degree were like Florida Institute of Technology, a fine institution, 
and some other small school. And I thought to myself, you know, if I turn out not to be a world-famous marine biologist, maybe I need a degree from that has a little bit more standing. And so it turned out that Duke University um, had a marine science consortium on the East Coast that you could go to and spend spring semesters. And I thought that's what I would do. And then I ended up playing basketball, and I had no spring semesters free, so I became a zoologist because I love living systems. I think the mystery of life is fantastic, and that's how I became a zoologist. How I got to the CIA is I couldn't decide if I wanted to be get pursue a Ph.D. in biomechanics, how living systems can be how they are used and put in use. I have or, this idea of a cheetah running yeah, around. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right? And how do you take what cheetahs do and then put it into human performance? That's kind of where I thought I was going to go. Do I want to get a PhD or do I want to go to law school? Um, because I love arguing. I, I live really? For, <laughs> I, live for the day really? Where, I live for the day to say, there, I've run <laughs> rings around you logically. I can just see myself doing that. And I thought, well, you know, if those are your choices, maybe you're not ready to go to higher education. You know, undergraduate teaches you how to think, higher education. So why not get a good job? And this is then back to my parents. My dad, a uh, career naval officer, his dad, the last job was the head of the Tennessee Valley Authority. And so kind of public service. Good family friend, Stan Turner, mm. who said you'd be a great spy, which of course I admit would be a terrible, <laughs> look at this face. I mean, you can see everything on it. But that's how I got there. So I thought, huh. And, and interesting, CIA was, was uh, interviewing on Duke's campus, so I thought I'll go do that. And I was originally hired to be an analyst of Soviet biological warfare systems, which is – I never did that in my whole career, but that's what I was hired to do. So it doesn't make – it makes some sense, right? Yeah. Did you enjoy being an analyst? I uh, loved it. I tell people all the time we are who we began as. And what's so fun about the job I have now is that I get the whole spectrum of intelligence, including um, seeing the product of intelligence analysis, and it's just fun. It's intellectually stimulating. I think, actually, zoology was a perfect background for it because in living systems, you have to assume that what they're doing, they're doing perfectly. That's what evolution says. And your job is to figure out what they're doing. That's a lot like intelligence analysis. And this notion of uncertainty is a little bit like the mystery of life. But still you have to be rigorous and thoughtful and provide answers that have standing even when they have uncertainty. And I think that is just fascinating. And then what it contributes to, particularly early on in your career, I had kids coming out of school with me that their first job was designing a bushing for GE and I was writing for the president. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just awesome. One of the things that some of the Weapons analysts at CIA used to say to me, right, is I could have gone to Boeing or I could have worked yeah. on one small piece of an aircraft, yeah. and here I'm an analyst for no, true. of you know the Soviet Soviet Air Force, right? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I do the whole thing. Yeah, it's both evidentiary and it's massively intellectually stimulating. And for the intellectually curious, it's just there's there's nothing better. So one of the themes of your career is that there isn't one. <laughs> And what I mean by that is you, you moved around a lot. Yeah. So you worked in the analytic director I did. in CIA. Uh, you worked in the science and technology director at CIA. You ran the support directorate. You ran a full-up operational unit, which we won't say any more about. You served in another IC agency mm -hmm. as the deputy director of the National Geospatial mm -hmm. Intelligence Agency. 
and now you you have this job, the number two in the entire intelligence community. So you moved around a lot. When young people say to you, and I'm sure they do, as they used to say to me, you moved around a lot. Yeah. Um, does that mean I should? What do you say to them? So I think the first thing I tell people is uh, first you have to be good. And I think we don't talk about that enough. But one of the keys to being able to move around is you have to have actual craft and you have to work at that. So no matter how many places you moved or I moved, you could probably look at it and say we were also really dedicated to being good. The second thing is once you have that nailed, trust yourself more than you trust the system. Right. The system will try and tell you what you should do next, and there's some wisdom in that. But if you know the path you want to be on and you're devoted to being good, I think you can take it. Um, and the last thing is, but never move around too much if you don't accomplish something. So I tell people all the time, uh, never leave a job to get away from it and never leave a job if you haven't accomplished something in it because then you've just invalidated all your work. There are costs to this approach of moving around. I used to say that I never got to take a job I knew how to do. Now, that's okay because this is so true and you will agree. Yeah. You know, you're not stuck with the knowledge you have. Right. Right? You can learn new things all right. the time. Right. So it's not being a dilettante or casual. But when you move around a lot, that thing of trusting yourself more than the system, the system doesn't quite know what to do with you. You're never the next in line because you were never invested enough in the organization to be the next in line. So then you have to understand how to make that work. For me, it was becoming the doer. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the course of my career, I became the person you hired if you needed to fix something or you needed to go somewhere. I remember, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but it can be lonely. It actually prepared me for this job. As a matter of fact, this job I have right now is the only job I think I knew how to do when I came in because of all those disparate jobs I had. And I bet you, you know, back to your first point about uh, establishing yourself and learning something, I bet the analytic skills Big that you learned, you used in every job every sense, job. including this one. Yeah, I do. And you know, there, are, there are people who look at the leaders of the community and want to make a negative of the fact that so many of us have an analytic background. I would say that critical thinking, you know, when we talk to people in schools or people in jobs and they want to know what the most important skills are, I, I always say critical thinking, thinking and the ability to make a decision. Yeah, so do I. Yeah. And and those two things yeah. are are fundamental to analysis. Yeah. So two more career questions and then we'll get into some current stuff. Uh the first is is a work life decision mm -hmm. that you made. Um and I remember it as if it were yesterday, you telling me about it. Um and I have to say here that that my daughter, who's a young female professional, gets mad at me for only asking women I know. the following question and I, I now commit to asking every man this question going ah. forward. You made this decision to leave the workforce mm -hmm. for quite some period of time, for nine years, mm -hmm. I think, to raise your kids. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? And can you talk about how you talk to both young men and young women mm -hmm. about the career life trade-off? Yeah. This conversation notwithstanding, I'm a pretty private person, but my decision to talk about the decision to leave has actually, I think, opened up more conversations with both men and women than almost anything I've done in my career. So pretty hard charger. At, I left it about 20 years, and I remember. I, I, I did. I, I was career of anyone's dreams. I had pretty much taken my little flag at a youngish age and put it in the top of the mountain, and I was really mission. And then I was out having a meeting, and my husband was on TDY um, doing work out of town. 
And my nine-year-old daughter called me and told me my 13-year-old son had run away. <laughs> Parents' worst nightmare. Yeah. I got home. Um, my son was home because my son will always come home. But there was a moment when I read the note that he said, and I thought, he's making decisions that aren't the right decisions to make. So I walked into work the next day, and I gave two weeks' notice because I'm an in or out person, and I realized that I couldn't at that moment both be the intelligence officer I wanted to be and be the mom I wanted to be. And if I couldn't be both, I knew the one that only I could do. Um, Hard because I love my work. I loved my work then. I love my work now. But it, it didn't take any time to make that decision, even though once I'd made the decision, I became just as concerned as anyone was. I was afraid that that I was giving away who I am. And I think this may be more true for women than men. I don't know that that's true, especially in the 90s still. I felt like I had bucked the trend and now was recognized as just being a steely-eyed intelligent professional. And I was afraid if I left, I'd go back to, and this is purposefully pejorative, just a mom. I still did it, but I was certainly concerned about it. And here's what I found. Zero regrets. Made the right decision for my family. I couldn't stop my children from being dumb at times, but they always knew I was with them. I had thought before I left that the big contributors to society were those of us who came in and do a nine-to-five job, and nine-to-five job, and we are big contributors to society. But the real engine are the crossing guards and the PTA and the community organizers. And all of a sudden, because I was out there, I saw that. And here's the cool thing. I was the exact same person Hmm. in that environment. I see you taking over all of those things. Right. (laughs) And so then, but when I came back in, because once I looked around, my children were fully formed. And I went, huh, I've still got run. And I think I asked you if you had any openings. (laughs) And we sure did. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I came back in with a much bigger view of what it takes I do tell people when they want to make these choices in terms of how it works. They all want to know, how did that happen? You're a role model for them. Yeah. So the first thing is everyone has a line in the sand. It has to be worth it. You get to make the choice. And if you make a choice for your reasons, what I found is the organization accepted it. But I understood what the consequence would be. For me, it was we lost more than half my family's income, right? Second thing is, I asked nothing of the organization when I made this decision. I didn't say, hey, I'd like to go away and do this, and can you promise me that when I come back I get to have a position, and I'd like to, in fact, because time will have passed, been promoted, I asked for none of that. So you get to make the choice. You can't also act ask to control the circumstance. So if you leave on good terms, the organization will accept that. If I'd asked for a lot of conditions, I think I might have damaged that. So just... What I would tell people is that when you have to make a big choice, whether it's personal, whether it's over career, the key to happiness is believing you have choice. The key to success is understanding that there are consequences and you don't control any of them. You know, you said something interesting um, when you talked about your story and your kids. One of the things that I learned being a parent is counterintuitive is that the older your kids get, the more they need you, right? They obviously need you when they're two and three to to feed them and take care of them. But psychologically, they need you so much more when they're teenagers. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's true. Uh, This happened uh, when you would have thought I was going into easy years. And the way I talk to parents about it is when they're younger, they are grateful for your time. And so whenever you have time, they're there. 
as they get older, they get to dictate their readiness and availability. What I will tell all parents, though, is when I look at my children, or Michael, if you met my children, and I don't know if you've ever met them, you would know them to be mine. And so for folks who worry about, can I work and be a parent, and have I given up that thing? Now I'm old and wise, I will tell you that the choice to work, the choice to not, all became choices that my children were proud of. That's great. Last career question. So of all the parts of the agency, the, the director of support, yeah. right, is probably viewed from the outside as, you know, how could this be cool? Security, IT, <laughs> HR, finance, logistics, right? But it really is cool. So what would you want people to know about the, the folks, not only at CIA, but across the community, yeah. right, who do support, who, who take care of um, mission? What would you want people to know about that? So my uh, top line statement, I say this all the time, it's the only job I ever hated to leave. Isn't that unbelievable? And I have loved every job I've done, and I've done some amazing jobs. But this job that was gifted to me so unexpectedly, thank you, was the job I hated to leave. Uh, Here's what's great about it. One, the people who create the quiet that lets mission happen are really amazing. I mean, think about that. I tell people all the time, and we'll do it between the two of us, you want to know what great support is? It's that quiet. Hmm. But what goes on behind the scenes to make that is the most intellectually compelling, complex, and here's the fun part for an intelligence officer, not intractable problem. It's hard. In the intelligence community with a worldwide mission, It's an incredibly complex venture to make it all work and make it work far afield in an environment where you can't always be seen for what you are. Really intellectually compelling. But you can sort it out. So a big problem that does have an answer, Mm. that's awesome. And the people who execute it have a culture of service within a culture of service. So everyone who works for the government is, you know, like me, committed public servant. But the people who do support, they're like that on steroids. So talk about working with people who want to go somewhere. Those are people of support. I remember I remember one morning meeting. Um, Dave Petraeus was the director, and he wanted something um, to happen in a particular country. Um, he wanted a new, a new base established, <laughs> and uh, he ordered it, right? He ordered us to do it, and I think a week later he said to me, when am I going to see the plan? <laughs> for, you know, this happening. And I said, it's done. It's already (laughs) happened. It's over. That's how fast you were able to move. Well, not me. So the best part about being the head of the directorate of support is that you know that our women and men would never let us fail. It it was so much fun. You can see me. If our our listeners could see me, I'm beaming at this. Yeah, Yeah, you are. Absolutely, you are. Okay, let's shift to the the issues of today, right? So the first is, the importance of what it is that mm-hmm. the intelligence community does every day, right? My thesis is that it's become much more important over time. Yeah. Does that resonate with you? Oh, it, it does um, for two reasons. In a world gone crazy, right, where it is so difficult to understand and to see the world and to understand the systems that are going on to, and to be able to chart a way forward requires – insight that can be elusive in a fast-moving world. What I always say is intelligence was designed for times of uncertainty. And given that 
if I talk about what intelligence is supposed to do, we're supposed to know the truth, see beyond the horizon, and enable, and this is the important part, enable the nation to act before events dictate, right? Once you know the equation, it's all pretty easy, but this is a world where we don't know the equations, and intelligence is the largest, in my estimation, potential contributor to being able to have decision advantage. It's supposed to reduce it uncertainty. It does. Right. And it's a craft that is designed for uncertainty, which is the, the interesting conundrum. Best time for this. So the country spends about $70 billion, I guess that's now unclassified, um, on intelligence. That's down from $80 billion mm-hmm. um, seven years ago. I guess that's a, that's a result of the Budget Control Act yeah. and sequestration. Do you have the resources you need to do the job? Are we leaving a significant amount of risk on the table? So it's been a it's been a tough run for a couple of reasons financially. One, uh, sequestration in general and budget uncertainty and living in times of continuing resolution. What that means is that we can't we can neither plan as we might, and we are always scrambling how to make that balance between the mission we must do today and the work we have to do to prepare for the future. So our mission has expanded. The number of national issues for which we can see the value of intelligence has grown. The global war on terror has certainly taxed us. And if you take that expanding mission at a time of fiscal uncertainty, the biggest risk is that you steal all your future in order to be able to satisfy the current, and that is not the best place for intelligence. And as leaders, what you want to do is to protect the future and take risk in the current. You tell me how likely that is to happen. So when you can't plan, I'm always living in this year, and this year's decisions will always be about this day. So does that, are, you, are you concerned about where we are with regard to that? I think this has probably always been true, that you don't have enough resources to do all that you might. I think we have recognized that that our strategic work probably needs to be redoubled. In a particular area, I think um, we probably need to invest a little bit more in research than we have perhaps in the, in the last decade or so. I think that counterterrorism has been such a consuming interest that we make the best decisions we can every day, but now we are here with a Russia that isn't the Soviet Union, a China that isn't a monolith, regional conflict that could become global in a minute, a world that has changed you politically because of digital connectedness, and how do I understand those and prepare for those? So, right. you know, I, I think we always have to make choices, and I think we have great people who make the best decisions they can every day, but I do think it's taken its toll. The choice of... Um of dealing with the president and, and, and putting off some of those tough decisions about the future is, is completely understandable, right? Right. Particularly with regard to. to counterterrorism, right? If somebody's trying to break into your house yep. and kill your family, that's your focus. Do. Right? You're not worried about tomorrow. You're not worried about next week, right? Best decision you can make every day. But the long-term deleterious effect of uncertainty in our budget profiles, not only uncertainty in the fact of, but uncertainty in the level, just takes its toll on on future investment. I was talking to a young intelligence officer, and and I mentioned that I was going to interview you, and this officer said, ask her what she does every day, right? Bond bonds. Um, Eat bond bonds most of the time. What does the DNI, right? What does the DNI do every day as an institution compared to the agencies? Yeah. Great question. I think we have two functions. Uh, The first is to make sure that the best 
of intelligence is always brought to bear at the moment of decision. Career CIA officer, I remember when the DIA was formed, we were all, ah, what do they need? What, what doesn't the president understand about the word central? As I see it now, this really is to making sure that all the 17 agencies and all the work they're doing can be brought to bear. And this is this is the director of national intelligence in his role as right. the president's right. intelligence advisor. Right. Bring it right. all together. And Integration. Right. Not just amalgamation, but actually to, to value. So that's one job. And the second job is go back to my support days, create the room for the agencies to achieve their highest potential. What the magic of the DNI should be is that we are focusing on those things that everyone needs so that they are provided so that the agencies have room to go. You have to remember from a DNI perspective is that we aren't the talent. The talent is in the agencies, and one of our responsibilities is to make sure that they have the room to grow, the budget to be able to do it, the policies that enable the movement. So those are, those are the two functions we have. So, so, so what does Sue Gordon's day look like? So I think I have as the deputy, and you've been a deputy yeah, before. I've been a deputy. So, so you, you, I know, have. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit, you know, the Ginger Rogers backwards and wearing heels. Yeah, yeah. So Fred Astaire. I see myself as having five jobs. One is to be the deputy to the DNI. Dan Coates is a great DNI. I like him in a way to uh, Leon Panetta in terms He's of the He's a wonderful rela- person. Right. Dan and Coates in the relationships person. that he has and the trust he inspires and the approach that he takes to advancing and representing the intelligence community, I think has just already paid dividends and will. His deputy needs to be able to step in and advance it. So that's one. The second is run this agency called the ODNI, kind of the food, shelter, clothing. We have a set of people who are trying to advance mission. Number three is be the COO for the intelligence community. So bring the leadership of the agency together to uh, advance our collective cause. The fourth is, um, and this is maybe an artifact of my predecessor or maybe just who I have, do some of the technical stuff mm-hmm. um, that needs to be done. And then the fifth one is, particular to this moment and this administration and this Congress, is Take a look at both the intelligence community and the ODNI to see if we are as prepared for the future as we were for the past. Um, so transformation. And then I do a set of, you know, the day is kind of one of each mm-hmm. of each of those. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no moss grows. Yeah. It's like a great job, though. Yeah, yeah and I'm sure. Absolutely. You're smiling again. I, I know. It's a great job. So some specific issues. The uh-huh. first is cyber. So <sighs> when, you were, when you were at CIA, I think you were still the director of support. The then director John Brennan asked you to to take a look at that issue, mm-hmm. right, and to and to think about um, how does this affect both from a defensive perspective and an offensive perspective and a perspective of how we do our job every day. How does this affect us? This thing called cyber. And I heard rumors that your answer was it affects everything, <laughs> right? And we need to embed it both defensively and offensively yeah. in how we do our job into everything we do. Yeah. Do I have that right? Does that make sense? And no, then, it does. And then how does how do you think about that from a community perspective? Yeah, great question. Um, and I think the the moment and the answer were relevant. He said, Sue, uh, I'd like you to fix cyber for the agency. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. And then we went off to figure it out. Where we ultimately settled is how do you affect our mission in a digital environment, right? That allows you to think about how do we protect our information um, in a world where we are not without adversaries, with capability. How do you affect your offensive mission through the digital domain to have the reach that you need? How do you assess what the world is doing when no longer are 
nation's concerns, the land around them, that anyone has the ability to affect reach? Uh, how do we train our people? How do we do it? So the way I think about cyber, and it's a good one for the nation to address, is every aspect of national interests will ultimately be affected through the digital environment. So there are specific disciplines, cyber defense, uh, cyber protection, cryptocurrency. I mean, there's just a number of things. But ultimately, if you just think about them technically, we're going to miss the fact that it is national interests being affected through that space. And so while it has a technical component, the way to think about its intent and to imagine your response is in not the technology, but rather in what's being affected. And if you get there, you're going to know that we have always known how to deal with adversaries who would do harm to us economically or adversaries who would affect military superiority. They're just now doing it through various domains. What is difficult about cyber, just as it was in thinking about the agency, it is not, it's a whole of country, not a whole of government problem because it right. does bring in very stark relief that our industries, our infrastructure are actually part of national security. And in this domain, 90% of our action and exposure is not controlled by the government. So it will test us to find new ways to partner in order to affect national security in a modern way. So a cyber expert and maybe you saw this, uh, recently wrote a, what I thought was a fascinating piece in the Cypher Brief where he posed two questions. One was, you know, despite our concern, we haven't seen a 9-11 Pearl mm. Harbor style attack on our critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? We were always worried about that. It hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. And his question was, well, why hasn't that happened, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other question he posed was, given everything that you just said, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people think that way, why aren't we further along in this journey of dealing and adapting to and taking care of this cyber issue? You know, why, yeah. why, why do we seem to be moving more slowly than we should be yeah. here? How do you think about those two questions? Yeah, so first things first, I think the expansion in cyber capabilities by our adversaries, the rate of progress they're making in terms of what they can do is really shocking. And their awareness of how they can affect their interests and their reach. So to be too comfy on what has happened in the past as prelude to the future is probably as uh, much of a folly as it's always been. Why haven't we seen some massive strategic, devastating physical attack? Um, one, those are pretty hard to pull off straight technically. I also think we're too thinking too narrowly about what a cyber attack is. Back to my previous question is we're thinking about a cyber 9-11 would be taking out the eastern seaboard. What's the real way to do strategic, uh, strategic effect on the United States? Make us, make us lose confidence in ourselves. Russia. And make us lose confidence in ourselves. So when you think about what a cyber nine eleven might look like, maybe it's not what we. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not just technical. Right. And why haven't we had it? We are doing a really good job of getting the world out about word out about cyber hygiene. And again, a paid public announcement. Patch. <laughs> know who you're accepting emails from. All this. But I would opine that that I think we need to think more broadly about what a nine eleven looks like, and it might not be a technical. Attack. The second part of your question was? Was why aren't we further along yeah. as a nation, yeah. right, in dealing with this when we all yeah. seem to understand yeah. some of the threats, right? Yeah. 
So I think we're on uh, – we have a moment where we might get there. I actually really admire the work that, that both the intelligence community and the administration are doing about being more public about what's happening and the companies as well so that now we're seeing what's happening to us. And, you know, we're, we're great in a crisis, and I think we're now seeing the crisis more clearly. Um, before, it was a company concealing the effect, effect of a cyber attack because they have fiduciary responsibility. And now we're all seeing that we're connected. So I think there's a moment where we can. I think that that we'll be successful if we start with the response we'd like to have and then think about how we can use all of our skills to be able to get there. I think we're still leading a little bit with each of our domains and saying, here's what I can do, here's what I can do. In the intelligence community, it's called leading with our authorities rather than leading with the question, and Mm -hmm. I think we're still doing that a little bit. Mm -hmm. The private sector certainly has things they need to protect. The government certainly has things it needs to protect. And so we're leading with what we're able to do rather than coming together and saying, how do we solve this problem? I think we'll find, I, I think this is something that everyone recognizes we need to do. And so the optimist in me says, this will be an era where we will see us um, knock that one off. So another issue, Sue, is, is the relationship between the private sector and the mm-hmm. intelligence community, right? I know you think mm-hmm. about that a I lot. Do. You helped create something called InQtel. Right, which was uh, a, a not-for-profit CIA-funded organization to make strategic investments in in high-tech companies that we thought had something to deliver to the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. And 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 when I go to Silicon Valley and I do that a lot, I see some amazing things, mm-hmm. right? And I think, boy, I'd like to see that inside mm-hmm. CIA or inside the intelligence community or inside DoD. How do you think? the IC, the defense community in general, is doing in understanding what's available in the private sector and bringing it in, right, to the intelligence community or to DOD in a way that enhances our national security? I think just as we did with NQTEL, we see the great engine of innovation that the private sector is. And if you look at the money that's in it right now compared to the money we put into some of those things within the government, it would be crazy to not take advantage of it. And so you increasingly see us want to buy things rather than build things. I think that's one of the first recognitions of it. I think we see it in the narrow. And when we have a use case that matches the technology, we're pretty good at bringing it in. We're pretty good at building things, taking advantage of it. Where I think we still uh, have a problem is in business systems in a weird sort of way, in terms of just the infrastructure that we have that allows rapid change. Something we struggled with. Something something we struggle with. I think there are a lot of folks in government right now that are really focused on innovation within our systems. I know the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Pat Shanahan, is almost singularly focused on this. And I think it will be a huge advance, the kind of acquisition reform that we need. I think those are on the threshold. If I were talking to my private sector colleagues and say what they could do to help would be um, my favorite phrase, which is, oh, you wanted to use it. You may have the best idea in the universe, but if I can't figure out how to get it into my system and you're making me do all the work to figure out the likelihood of rapid success. So if I could get my partners in the private sector when they have something that they know we're interested in, could also think about the limitations of our environment, that would help. Is there a front door to the intelligence community that if I, as a private company, think I have something to offer, I can knock on the door and say... Yeah, that's a great question. How does a company who thinks they have have something to offer talk to the right person? So I think there are lots of right people to talk to in all the agencies, and the companies know how to talk to them. And the problem is we're not getting the big strategic snowball effect. 
Um, I mentioned to you one of my jobs is transformation. So I think one of the things that the ODNI, in terms of this kind of common service, could do is to maybe create some of those front doors for the big strategic changes rather than just have every agency and every program be pursuing the same people. We're bringing it in. There are doors. But I'm talking about those things that could make big strategic plays. I think this is something you ought to expect me to deliver for the community. Last last um, big issue, mm-hmm. which is the polarization of yeah. politics in America yeah. and its impact mm-hmm. on you and the intelligence mm-hmm. community. You know, it used to be there was a big center, and now that center has become two blobs, right, on either side of the center. And politics is now infecting everything, as yeah. you know. And it certainly has affected the intelligence community. You and I got stuck in the Benghazi issue, right? We used to say that sometimes the intelligence community becomes the meat in the sandwich, right, as both sides Mm -hmm. um, struggle against each other. It's happening a little bit on Russia now, right? It is. What do you say to your officers about that, about that politics that's swirling out there and sometimes affects at least the perception of what it is they're doing? So I think the first thing you tell them is what we've told ourselves forever, and that is... We have probably one of the purest jobs in the whole of government because it is simply about the truth as we see it. Our positioning then, when we started as it is now, is that role of an advocate simply of what we know and what we assess to be true for others to use effectively. That is a great job. It is a true job. It is a job we have to play with all our strength because, just as it was then now, even more important. Throughout my history, I have certainly been in lots of meetings where I knew what they wanted me to say, the intelligence said, because that helps impel things. There isn't much different under the sun on that one. It's just being played out publicly. But what I tell my officers is people will want that. We still do this job because this is what they demand we do, even when it's hard. I think what's hard right now is uh, the environment is so polarized. We used to do, do our job in silence. And now, in part because we have to have a conversation with the American people, and I think that's right, and in part because events have just thrust us there, now... We are seen in that, and it makes it difficult. But I think the role itself and our people understanding that role is just as true as it's ever been. It's just being played out in a stage that we have never had to play it out on before. You know, they used to call us behind closed doors and ask all these same questions. Mm-hmm. What I would tell people is I'm not um, with the president as much as the director is. I've never felt anything other than his interest in what we know so that he can make the best decisions he can. I have a lot of confidence in our officers to be able to do what we have done throughout our history, even though as humans, they're seeing not only questioning of judgment, and here's a really hard thing, questioning of integrity. Mm -hmm. We can be wrong with the best of them, but my experience is that when you question our integrity, that is so core to who we are, that that's where the rub is. But to officers in our organizations, I would say we've got the best job. We got won the lotto in terms of the role we're supposed to play. Play it hard. It'll be all right. So you've been very gracious with your time. I just want to ask you one more thing. Mm-hmm. Being an intelligence officer is a tough job. Mm-hmm. Long hours. Mm-hmm. Got to take a polygraph and open up your life, right? right? 
um, which I don't have to do anymore, thank God. Yeah. You work, uh, you know, overseas, tough on family, and it's dangerous. You've been in jobs, uh, one in particular as the director of support, where you've had to send people into harm's way, and you've had people not come home. The two CIA officers uh, who died in Benghazi worked for you Mm -hmm. um, at CIA. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you thought about that and what it means to you? Uh, uh, This is my favorite and hardest topic. Um, We talk about risks and failure all the time in terms of programs and stuff like that. Um, Putting humans at risk. It's the realest thing that one can ever experience. Um, It's why we protect our secrets, actually, so hard because of that. On sending people out and bringing our patriots home, uh, three thoughts. Number one is the people who sign up to do this work know what they're doing. They understand the risks, and you have to honor them by allowing them to do what they do and not taking away from them their commitment. The second is, but you better make darn sure that what you send them to do is worthy because um, it weighs on you. But it is in showing up on the tarmac of Dover to finish the job of bringing our patriots home and meeting with the families at a moment of unimaginable grief. I can't, can't imagine it. And you want to know the strength of America? It's in those family members who in the course of about a minute are spending their words to try and convince you that it's okay. The grace of the families inspires you to be good enough and reminds you of the greatness of what we are. They are remarkable. They are really It's remarkable. unbelievable. And you better be worthy of them with every decision you make because they will give you that and you ought to be good enough for it. So, Sue, I am, I am, um, it means so much to me that you are in the position that you are in because of how you approach this job and how you think about the men and women who work for you. It makes me feel good about the IC and it makes me feel good for the country. So thank you for your time and it's been great to see you and we will do this again sometime. Done. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. That was Sue Gordon. I'm Michael Morrell. This was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time and please take a minute to leave us a comment wherever you get your podcasts. We read every one of them. And please subscribe to The Cypher Brief, where you get unique insights into national security issues every day. Just go to thecypherbrief.com and sign up. It's free. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.